Oh, hello. I didn't see you there. It's me, Helen, and I want to talk to you for a second about the presenter of today's episode of The Eater Upsell, MailChimp. 14 million people use MailChimp every day, sending over a billion emails. MailChimp. Send better email. Sell more stuff. Hey friends, Helen here. On today's episode of The Eater Upsell, Greg and I are talking with J. Kenji Lopez-Alt, the man who Ed Levine referred to once as the most important recipe developer to come along in a generation. Then again, Ed is Kenji's boss. Kenji is the managing culinary director of Serious Eats, and far more importantly for our purposes, he is the author, creator, and human embodiment of The Food Lab. Before we get to talking with Kenji, though, a reminder that, number one, you should definitely subscribe to The Eater Upsell if you haven't already. Just hit the subscribe button right there on your listening device, and you will get my voice and Greg's voice and the beautiful voices of our guests in your ears every week without having to do anything. You can also visit eater.com slash upsell for transcripts and archives of the entire show. If you don't want to listen to us, just read us at eater.com slash archives. Subscribe, read, tell your friends. That's all we want. And now, Greg and I are going to talk to Kenji Lopez-Alt. I had a terrible bagel this morning, like terrible, terrible bagel. That's a classic New York experience. Yeah, and it, you know, so it was from Baz Bagels, which is hit or miss, um, way overpriced, but it's usually pretty, usually pretty fine. Like it's next to the Serious Eats office, so I get it relatively frequently. It was just so bad today, like pale, tasted like raw flour. It was just, it was, it was bad. You have strong opinions about bagels. I have very strong opinions about bagels. So you debunked um, extensively in in the food lab and and in the intro to your book, but also sort of in general, this myth of the New York water being the key to a a baked goods success. Right. You did a very complicated triple blind (laughs) experiment involving like pizza, pizza. Yeah. With uh, with Matthew uh, Palombino from uh, Motorino. So why do you think it is that the Bay Area can't get its shit together on a bagel? Or it's pizza, not really? The water. Or pizza? I mean, yeah. well, they can get it. Sh- it does. It does. Um, it does Neapolitan style pizza as well, but it, you can't really get a good New York style slice. I, I don't know. I think. It, I mean, I think it's mostly a matter of not having the right culture and not having um, the kind of like human culture, not yeast culture, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just making sure. There's just not a pizza culture, right? It's yeah. like, um, and and it's it's there's not the same kind of discerning audience, which which is not saying that you know people who discern pizza are better than people who don't discern pizza, but you know you if you're from New York and you grew up here, then you just have it built into you like what a pe- slice of pizza is supposed to be in a way that people from outside of New York don't. Um, and so I think, I think it's partially that there's not, not the right people making it. Um, and, but more importantly, I think there's not, not the right people eating it or the right people demanding it. But yeah, that's, I mean, it's a question I've always had. Like why, why do certain regional foods that are loved outside of their region, why do they stay so regional? Like why is it difficult to bring them outside of those regions? I want to come back in a second to the spurious accusation that only people who are raised in New York understand what good (laughs) New York pizza is, but we should introduce our guests today. Um, I didn't even know we started. Yeah, no, we're we're, we're always rolling. This is the second we we did this sort of sneaky start. (laughs) (laughs) We've captured all your secrets. Should we say your entire four component name, or like how how do you prefer to be introduced? J. Kenji Kenji. Lopez Alt. Yeah, J. Kenji Lopez Alt. Commonly known as Kenji. It's Kenji, just, yeah. Just Kenji. Kenji works. Um, the author of The Food Lab, which is a huge, beautiful, incredibly comprehensive, super fun cookbook, and also the chief creative officer of mm, Series Managing Seeds. Culinary Director. Managing Culinary yeah. Director of Series Seeds. I will read that. That was my previous that. that was my previous title. 
Okay. So the managing managing culinary director of Mm -hmm. SeriousEats.com, which is one of Eater's frenemies. Love that site. (laughs) Love it. I think I think we used to be much more competitive. We we used to compete in the same sphere a lot more than we do now. Like we've sort of branched off into into our own specialties, which is great. I think. No, yeah, I, it's a, each publication has gone down its own path, and 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 uh, you know, I just I love Serious Eats. I I have very fond memories of like the two thousand eight two thousand nine era Serious Eats, mm-hmm. which is uh, pre Kenji. So much pre- better back then. <laughs> that was pre Kenji. Kenji, when did when did you come aboard the team? I started Serious Eats in um, 2010, I think. Well, I started I started as a freelancer writing stories for like 25 bucks a piece uh, in 2009. Um, and then I came on full time in 2010, like October of 2010, something like that. Greg dropping the sick burns. <laughs> like so much better. For no, I- no. I love the I love the, the 2010, uh, 2011 era, the, the, the Kenji presence. I mean, it, well, I remember- it was really different, right? Because we used to do we used to yeah. do reviews and culture and gossipy stuff. And and now we most I mean, we now we do basically just larger features and recipes. It used to really be a heavier on the restaurant side of things than the home cooking side of things. And then it when kind it first of started. Right. Yeah. It started as Ed Levine eats, which was basically just Ed walking around New York and eating things and saying, hey, I had this slice of pizza today. Um, so it really was like, you know, pre social. It was pre big social media. Um, and so it was just it, it's if Ed had a Twitter account then and could write more than 140 characters, but fewer than 500 per tweet. It's basically what Serious Eats was at the beginning. Um, and then it, yeah, it grew and changed and evolved from there. I feel like over the years, a lot of what Serious Eats has done has given everyone kind of parameters and language for talking about very specific, you know, dishes and and sort of regional items mm-hmm. and sort of helping people figure out, you know, what they should be looking for and what they how they should be sort of understanding mm-hmm. the food, mm-hmm. which I've always thought was a you know is is very the context is very helpful if you're someone who loves and wants to keep exploring. You know, food. Right, right, and that and that's always been one of the um, you know one of the pillars of the site is is to um, you know this idea that you should treat a hot dog as seriously as you should treat like any fancy restaurant meal, um, which at the time you know there weren't that many people um, at least online or or in you know real respectable publications. Not that Serious Eats is or well, I guess it's respectable now, um, but at the time there, there wasn't that I much writing like that. It, yeah. yeah. Um, and, you know, and Ed, Ed had done a number of stories like for the New York Times that were sort of like that. Um, but it, he wanted a place where it was sort of just like the entire ethos of the site was like, we're going to we're going to take hot dogs seriously, but we're not going to take ourselves seriously, which is which is sort of the, you know, the joke about the title of the site is that we're not really actually serious. So before you joined Serious Seats, you were living in Boston. Uh, I was living in Boston. Yeah, I start, well, I started freelancing for Serious Seats while I was still living in Boston. Mm-hmm. I lived there. Well, I was born there. Um, grew up in New York City, but went back to Boston for school, and then I lived in Boston for about ten years. Um, I was working at the time. I was working at um, Cooks Illustrated, uh, America's Test Kitchen, um, and that was that was a great job. So, Kenji, did you grow up as someone who like naturally gravitated towards cooking? Like as a kid, were you trying to cook? Were you, you know, as a teenager, trying to put those things together in the kitchen? No, not I mean, not at all. No, I didn't. I I started cooking. Um, Basically, uh, accidentally, um, it was while I was in college, um, the summer after my sophomore year, I was, I wanted to take the summer off from doing academic work. So I went around looking for a job as a waiter in Boston, um, 
And one of the restaurants I walked into, this was, if you're familiar with Boston, uh, circa you know, 1999 or whatever, 1998, uh, this was Fire and Ice Shut in, up, Harvard, in Square, Harvard Square, which is like an all-you-can-eat Mongolian buffet type thing. That was my favorite restaurant when I was like 19 <laughs> years old. Yeah, it was a lot of 19-year-olds' favorite restaurants. Um, that was the best restaurant. <laughs> like, it was in, I, I spent the summer of 99 in Boston, in Cambridge, and, and I went to Fire and Ice all the time. Then I must have cooked for you. I, so I was my first restaurant job was Night of the Round Grill. Um, so this I was the guy in the middle right who now. like would whatever flip asparagus in the air and catch it on a plate behind me and, and, and stir fry your stuff. So for anybody who's not familiar with Fire and Ice, <laughs> which I think just closed. Yeah, actually, yeah I think they just closed. Which was uh, like a pain in my heart when <laughs> I heard this. Um, Fire and Ice is a I guess in, in my memory, it was gigantic, but it's big. Yeah, 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 yeah. Several hundred seats. Sort of a, a like a big Mongolian barbecue style thing where you get a big like melamine bowl and there are tons of sort of salad bar style sneeze guarded mm -hmm. things full of thinly sliced raw meats and lots of vegetables and And your choice of like one of 12 sauces. Billions of sauces and you pay some flat rate and you can yeah, eat as much like as you want. Yeah, it was like 23.95 or something like that and you can go up and eat as much as you want. And it was it was incredible. I <laughs> I actually had A lot some... of awkward dates. You see a lot of awkward dates in there and then a lot of like college parties. Would you as a cook get tipped? I remember there was always that awkward moment of like you're supposed to tip I have never been like cooks. hit on so much in my life as a cook at Fire and Ice, mostly by like um, mostly by like high schoolers who are in like Harvard summer school or whatever. That was me. <laughs> I was taking Latin um, like a like cool person. Three or four times a week, um, people would like pass me their phone numbers over the over over the uh, over the counter there, which is it was it was strange. It was strange. I was like, Helen, yeah, it's actually pretty cool to be a cook. Hit on Kenji, and we've just never made this connection before. <laughs> there is a non-zero chance that I hit on Kenji as a as a. 17 year old taking Latin at Harvard in the summer of 1999. Mm. <laughs> That's God, I need to just take a minute to process this extraordinary fact. So what was your next next step? Did, were you like, okay, I'm making this Mongolian barbecue <laughs> and oh my God, I actually want to like learn how to be a cook at, at things that are not Mongolian yeah. barbecue or was it just your first job? That, that kinda... Well, it was my first job working in a kitchen. Um, and I, and so for me, like I really I fell in love with sort of the culture of kitchens and the culture of cooking before I really started enjoying food, you know, because Mongolian barbecue, you're not, it's not like you, you're, you're really getting that many cooking skills other than basic knife skills for prep, which is important. But really it's, that was more about like learning how to work as a team in a kitchen, learning how to work fast and stay on your feet and all that stuff. Um, and so I really enjoyed that. And then I think I probably read Kitchen Confidential and I was like, yeah, this is definitely the job for me. Um, cause like, you know, it's like, I wanted, I, um, I played a lot of music back, like when I was younger, I was like, I always kind of wanted to be a rock star. I was like, this is sort of like being a rock star. So what was your seems instrument? easier. Well, I grew up playing violin actually. Um, uh, noted since rock I was like instrument. three years old. Violin. And then, yeah. <laughs> um, then I yeah, picked well, up guitar, guitar when band I was and, uh, a teenager. You know, ELO. That's true. Yeah. So after reading uh, Kitchen Confidential, mm -hmm. were you like, I have to work in what kind of kitchen? Well, um, so I was, you know, I was still, uh, that, that was the summer after my sophomore year in college. So I still had a couple of years of school left. Um, so I was, I started working part-time um, in various kitchens when I, you know, when I was still an undergrad. Um, so, so some of the times I, so I, I lived in a fraternity house and so we fired our cook and I was cooking meals at my fraternity house. Um, so that was, that was a fun experience, you know, like cooking for 40 people a night, um, every night. Um, and then, uh, I worked part-time at a restaurant called, uh, Rock Bottom, which is like a TGI Friday style chain from Colorado. Um, so 
making yeah burgers and steaks and pasta and whatever all that all that stuff you get at TGI like Fridays being on the line yeah yeah being on the line um and then after I graduated my first full-time job was at a was at a pizzeria called Cambridge One which maybe you know from Boston it might that might have been come after nope. yeah you know what it opened it opened in 2002 huh. um it opened like the year I started Helen there. only went to Mongolian barbecue restaurants <laughs> it was so. across the street from the Mongolian barbecue so you have worked in restaurant kitchens you worked in a test kitchen I cooks mm-hmm. illustrated or mm-hmm. America's test kitchen yeah um and now you work primarily in a home kitchen at home mm-hmm. so these are three very different ways of approaching the making of the food that you're making right well, the test kitchen stuff in the home kitchen is not really that different, um, you know, because because at Cooks Illustrated, at the test kitchen I worked in at Cooks Illustrated, um, it, it's a giant it's a giant facility, but um, everything we use is stuff that a home cook would use um, because the whole idea is, you know, we're writing recipes for home cooks, so we have to use the same equipment. So it's not actually really that different from working at home. Um, it, you know, working, doing, when I started the food lab, um, it was from a tiny, like, New York apartment kitchen. That was a little bit difficult, um, especially, you know, especially doing massive amounts of testing when you have like only one oven and it's under your and it's under your burners and and not very much space to work with. Um, that 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 became a little bit straining. Um, I, I live in California now. I have a little bit more space. I mean, well, actually, a lot more space because there's just more space out there. Um, so testing has become a lot easier out there. Um, but yeah, it's 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 still a constraint um, uh, compared to being able to work in like a full test kitchen. But I but it's. You know, I wouldn't I wouldn't trade it. I like working at home. Have you made any adaptations to your home kitchen to sort of reflect the fact that testing recipes is what you do in there? Um, Adaptations. I mean, I have tons of tools and gadgets and stuff like giant closets full of stuff. Um, I use I use induction burners a lot now because so I have like a four burner stove, um, but I have a couple of like plug in electric induction burners that I use on the countertop um, when I need either more stove, either more burner space um, or particularly for like fo- uh, taking photographs and video and stuff, because you can get a lot better light with a like an island style um, space, which is where I use my my induction burner, as opposed to a stove, which is like under you know in a corner under a uh, under a hood where you can't really get good angles or good light. Um, but th- yeah, those are the only me- real major um, major changes. I mean, I'll, I also have my my kitchen set up for photography and video, um, so um, a, a lot of lights and tripods and things like that so for the book you shot pretty much the entire book right uh Lots of i it? shot all the book except for, i think there's like one picture of me at the beginning <laughs> which or somewhere which, which i did not take myself but everything else i shot yeah and the book came out like close to a year ago right and uh, has won like exactly every award in the world a year ago. oh yeah september 21st of last year oh hey happy oh, book almost birthday exactly a year old yeah. that's so exciting are you God, sick some of it? the photos in this book are so ugly <laughs> <laughs> Because I, I started shooting these photos like five years ago, and and I was I'm photography like photography is one of those things that I I studied it in college a bit, and I did a lot of it, but I've I feel like it's one of those things where I've just gotten so much better in the last few years that now I look at stuff from like a couple years and I'm like God, I wish I wish I could redo all this. <laughs> oh well. The book is is behemothic. I mean, it's close to a thousand pages. It's certainly over nine hundred, and I feel like Greg was just about to ask how long, right, Greg? Because that's the obvious question. Yeah, I was just kind of curious how long this whole process took. So five years, it sounds like at the very least, if you started taking photos yeah. of it. But uh, like, when did you actively start working on this book? And um, let's see, I put together the proposal. So I started writing the column in um, two thousand, I think two thousand nine or maybe two thousand, maybe early mid two thousand ten. Um, 
uh, and then very soon after that, I started, um, I, you know, Ed uh, from Serious Seats, he said, you should, you should, this is good material for a book. And, you know, and, and the, the column was popular right off the bat, um, which was surprising to me because it's just like, I'm just going to write this thing about things that I care about. And turned out other people care about it too. Um, so, you know, once we saw that it was popular, Ed was like, yeah, you should write a book. Um, Ed's wife um, is a book agent. Um, he's like, talk to my wife put together a proposal. So I basically pretty much immediately put together a proposal. I think I'd maybe published a half dozen articles online when I put together the proposal. Um, so that was late 2010. And then it came out in 2015. So five, I mean, five years start to finish from when the idea for the book to when it was actually in print. Um, I'd say the first two and a half years was recipe testing and development. Um, and then I reshot all the photos, which I would like to reshoot again. <laughs> um, and that, And so that took like another six months or nine months or so. And then uh, design and layout and all that stuff for about a year um, leading up to the release. And meanwhile, your column was becoming a phenomenon. I think in many ways, what you do with the Food Lab has completely recalibrated how the recipe internet works. Um, you're making a Maybe. very humble face right now. <laughs> um, no, I mean, it has, I think, I, and and um, on Serious Eats for sure. But, you know, when we were introducing you, like, Kenji has become a word that isn't just your name. It has become a, a way that I think lots of people, definitely lots of people on Reddit, but like lots Reddit, of yes. people think about food, which is which is mm -hmm. really, I don't know. I think that must be kind of surreal and awesome for you to look around it, it is, and see it is that people, I mean, it's it's amazing. I mean, yeah, it is definitely surreal and awesome. I mean, what's amazing to me is that like, um, you know, like I said, this was something I just started doing because... I liked science and I liked cooking and I wanted to do something that put the two together. Um, and uh, luckily, you know, Ed hired me or paid me to do it. You know, I, and in the early days, I, I don't I'm, I'm sure Eater, at, you know, in, in 2010 or whatever, was probably paying the same rates, um, 40 bucks an article or something like that. You know, in the early days, I was barely, barely getting any any money for it. Um, I was doing it just because I really liked the process of it. Um, and I, and, um, and then when I found out that there's an audience out there that wants to read this stuff, that was really cool too, because, um, you know, it meant that like, you know, work, working in a restaurant kitchen in the hospitality industry, which I did for a long time before this, um, you know, the, the reason you work in hospitality, um, is because you want to make some kind of improvement in people's lives. And, and that was, that was the feeling that I got working in restaurants. Like, you know, there's this person on the other side of that kitchen door and they're willing to pay 40 bucks for this thing that I just made. Um, and to me, that's really cool that like something I made is valued and, and, and makes people happy. Um, but working in restaurants, you're basically, you know, you're feeding maybe a hundred really rich people every night. Um, so not really making that big an impact. So when I then got into recipe development and like saw that there's all these people who are using those recipes to then feed their families, um, and teach their kids how to cook, it's like, it's a much, much bigger impact you can make. Um, so, you know, that that was sort of the thrill of it at the beginning. Um, and, and it's still the thrill of it, like the idea that, uh, you know, I can write this stuff and it's useful to people and it, and it can help them, um, you know, lead better lives, feed themselves better, feed their families better. Um, that That's always sort of been the, the reason that I do this. Um, and yeah, so it's cool. It's cool that people like it. <laughs> well, I feel like there are just so many recipes. I mean, there's a bajillion recipes on the Internet right now, mm -hmm. especially if you're someone who gets excited about celebrity chefs or cooking something from a restaurant and you find some recipe online and you try and cook it at home, a lot of the times it's not going to turn out great because who knows why. Right. You know, maybe the recipe wasn't tested. Maybe 
it requires a certain level of skill that you don't have. And you didn't know mm-hmm. that while you were cooking it. But I think the kind of, uh, you know, your recipes and the approach is like one, I think one reason people really get excited about it is, you know, the information is right there in front mm-hmm. of you as to why it's going to work mm-hmm. and how it's going to work and what you need to do to make it work. So, you know, you build up a level of trust, I feel like, with the, with with the Kenji system there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and, and well, the, the other thing, you know, the, I think one of the um, the ways that I want the book to be used um, and the column is that, um, you know, I never see it as recipes. It's more, for me, it's more, it's much more about the writing and the recipe development process because I think that's the part that um, once, you know, once you understand how a recipe works and why you're cooking it this way, um, you know, that's what empowers you as a cook to be able to then go and adapt it um, and, 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 and take those take those lessons and apply them to your own cooking and come up with your own food. Um, so, you know, you, you can follow the recipes as written. Um, but, um, you know, I, I like to think of it more as just like, um, like handing someone a map that lets them, you know, then decide their own path. Um, and, you know, and I, and I also don't want to pretend that like I'm the first person to have done this, you know, obviously like a lot of what I do in the food lab, um, in the column and in the book, um, you know, comes from working, having worked at Cooks Illustrated for three years, because that, you know, that, that has been their model for, um, well, decades now, a couple decades now. The difference is that I think, you know, my, my one, my one biggest constraint at, at Cooks Illustrated was, was tone. You know, it's like, um, Cooks Illustrated has the Cooks Illustrated tone and they have multiple writers, but, you know, no matter what you're like in real life or what your personality is on, on the page, it kind of goes through this Cooks Illustrator sausage grinder and comes out the other end as a Cooks Illustrated article. Um, so how do you, how do you describe that tone, the Cooks Illustrated tone? Mm, like, what is it for? Well, it's, it's very matter of fact. Um, it's not, I, I would say it's, it's a little dry, you know, it's not, it's not fun. It's like, there's no jokes in it. There's no like fun cultural references in it. There's just like, this is what we did and this is why it happened, um, which to me reads, you know, it reads sort of more textbook like um, and and it's much more um, it's much more uh, the tone is much more, I think, like professor to student, um, whereas I try very hard to be to make it more. You know, what, what I always do when I'm writing is I imagine that like. Um, I'm talking to my friend and like, I'm just want them to hear about this really cool thing that just happened. Um, and that's, that's the tone that I try to take. Um, which, which I think is, I think, you know, I learn a lot more from talking with my friends than I do from just reading uh, textbooks. Um, and so, you know, I think trying to get rid of that dryness was, is something that I work hard at and, um, in my voice, at least. That idea of the really cool thing, I think has become a hallmark in the way that your recipes and, and sort of you as this cult figure have spread throughout the internet like things like your french fry technique and and mm-hmm. you have uh, there are techniques there are there are techniques that i think are now really linked to you and to your name and to the food lab do you feel like that's a pressure like that everything you've got to come up with has to contain this sort of like subverting like but actually every <laughs> way we've been cooking chicken has been wrong and we should be freezing it until the proteins denature through ice or whatever <laughs> like um no I, I mean i don't feel that as pressure um you know it, it is really nice it is really nice when you're writing a story and and you're and you're researching a story and you're testing something and you discover something like that um, but it's not like, it's not like you can go out and say, all right, like, what am I going to disprove today? Cause it, it just doesn't work like that because 
things have to actually be untrue for you to be able to disprove them. And it turns out most of the things in cooking are true, you know. So a lot of, a lot of the lessons you learn um, and a lot of the things I try to write about um, are not like debunking. It's really saying, you know, this is the way people do it. Here's why it works. Um, then, but the ones that I guess the ones that become really popular or blow up are the ones that are like everyone's been doing it wrong, and here's why. Um, but no, you know, I never go out trying to to find that thing or trying to you know trying to um, force something to be different. Um, so what what was your most I'm sorry what was your most traditionally popular food lab post? Most popular food lab post: uh, ch- chocolate chip cookies, super popular. Um, and boiled eggs. Anytime you write about eggs, it's popular. Um, I think um, boiled eggs is probably eggs, one of huh? the most popular. Huh. Mm, and as far as recipes go, I have a like a, a no need, no stretch um, skillet pizza, like cast iron skillet pizza. Um, that, that feels became like it very internet popular. Appeals to everybody's desire to have maximum quality with minimum effort. Yeah, it's it's a super simple. I mean, it's basically it's an adaptation of like you know like a Jim Leahy style no knead dough. So you just throw together some dough ingredients, put them in a bowl, let them sit overnight, and then you dump it all into an oiled cast iron skillet. Um, you, it's very high hydration, so it basically just like stretches out itself. You don't have to you don't have to knead it. You don't have to stretch it or anything. It just kind of fills out the skillet by itself. Then you top it and bake it, and it's. You know, homemade pizza, it takes a day to make, but homemade pizza with, like, basically zero effort requires almost zero skill. Um, so, yeah, people people seem to love that because I, I think that's one of those, like, I made this moments when, you know, people who maybe have never cooked before are like, oh, this looks easy enough. And then they try and like, oh, I made this. It tastes good. Okay. Let's take a quick second, actually 15 seconds per their contract, away from our interview with Kenji to check in with the presenter of this episode of The Eater Upsell, MailChimp, which is, to be totally frank, the easiest to use, nicest, coolest, most simple email marketing platform probably in the whole world. MailChimp. Send better email, sell more stuff. Okay, back to Kenji. Your recipes are particularly alluring to people who may never have cooked before or may have felt... (laughs) intimidated by the kitchen or maybe I'm trying to just sort of very diplomatically say what I'm just going to come right out and say like (laughs) dudes there are a lot of dudes love you like dudes (laughs) dudes love you and and I think that it's and dudes also tend to love Nathan Mervold and Alton Brown and Harold McGee and this this very kind of quantitative systematic regimented approach that also Mm -hmm. maybe carries with it an idea of perfection Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. Which, yeah, explain that. No, I mean, like, well, you know, I, so question, I think there's but... a couple explanations. Um, so I think um, part of it is that historically, men don't learn cooking from their parents the way that that women do. That little little girls bake with their mom and little boys play baseball with their dad, whatever. You know, just historically, I think that's sort of how it is. And so I think a lot of a lot of sort of dudes grow up without having this sort of, you know, this knowledge of cooking pressed into them um, or family recipes or anything like that. And even more now, um, I think you find that because um, for the last few generations, we've had, there's a lot of families where both parents are working. Um, and so you eat out a lot or you order in a lot. Um, so I think we've sort of lost this culture of passing down cooking knowledge and, and recipes from uh, parents to children. Um, and so there's a lot of people my age, um, you know, mid thirties, maybe some a little older, some a little younger. But there's a lot of people I think in my generation who grew up without um, having a sort of central cooking figure and ha- without having the sort of cooking knowledge built into them as a kid, um, without having family recipes. And so when you suddenly become an adult, you're like, 
completely lost. Um, so I, th I think that sort of approach where it's like, you know, it's okay if you don't have a family recipe because here's how cooking works and we're going to like, we're going to break it down for you in a methodical way, in a way that's going to make sense to you, regardless of, of, you know, whether you ever cooked as a kid or not. I think that's why it appeals to, um, well, dudes in particular, but, um, also I think a lot of people, you know, of our age who, um, who, who did grow up without, without that kind of cooking. I find when I, when I do events, um, my fans are always, almost always, I'd say like 90% of my fans are like bearded guys um, or Asian people. 90% <laughs> of the time. It's inexplicable. <laughs> uh, we, we, we talked with Nathan Mirvold and he was saying that he, he gets frustrated sometimes by how, I guess, illogical mm -hmm. people can be about the idea of cooking and food um, mm. because we have culturally so much emotion and so much sense of self and history and family tied mm -hmm. up in how we eat and what we eat. And when you try to take a, a more sort of regimented scientific approach to this, like, well, what is actually happening here? Like, right. Let's dissect the science of it. There is a, a pretty vocal faction of people who recoil at that kind yeah, of analysis. Mostly Italian. They're mostly Italian. <laughs> do you get pushback? <laughs> I mean, do you, I mean, for all the Kenji fans, do you I, have like some weird small core of haters or something? Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I don't know if it's a small core of, core of haters, but it's there. Yeah, there's definitely like when you when you tell people when I write a recipe that says, you know, put the pasta in a pan, cover it with cold water, stick it on the stovetop and bring it to a boil because that works like it, it saves energy, uses less water. It, it, it makes your sauces better in the end because you get a higher starch concentration. But everything about cooking pasta with less water is basically better. Um, but it's not the traditional way you do it. Um, and you get yeah, you definitely get people who are like, you're crazy or um, you're an insult to Italian God, that's, cuisine. That's so uh, funny, actually, because I. You know, I grew up in an Italian-American mm -hmm. household. That's the stuff we cooked in my family. And there is, like, I definitely have observed this just in my family. People that know they don't want to read a recipe about Italian food. Yeah. They don't want to hear about how somebody does it. And I, I don't know. It's like, uh, it must <laughs> just be pride. Or I don't I mean, I don't there, are, cer there I mean, are certain cultures, I think, where, you know, where food plays a much more central cultural role um, in sort of defining who you are as, like, a person or as a family or um or, you know, or as a country. Um, and so, yeah, so when you're, when you're challenging a basic cooking method that someone grew up, grew up with, like you're, it's basically, you know, you're, you're challenging like some real core part of their existence. Um, and so you can, you can understand why people might get upset by that. Um, you know, I, I, I do, I do personally try and take a logical approach to things. Um, but you know, but there are things I'm irrational about too. Um, like, you know, I like I, my sandwiches have to be in triangles and not squares. And it's not like, you know, and triangles <laughs> just taste better to me. And it's and, you know, or or like I, I, I hate it when when people toast bagels. I disagree um, about that. So hard. Yeah. We could just argue about bagels for the rest of this. If you want. Like, I'm here for that. <laughs> where, where are you from? Again? I'm from Chicago. Right. Right. OK. Which so that, that, has that no explains real it. bagel legacy. Yeah. But yeah. No, that's true, actually. I mean, because I, I grew up eating the sort of frozen right. like, tube shaped bags of, of bagels. Which you have to toast. You have to toast them. Otherwise, to they're repulsive. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, I think I grew I think, up. Yeah, I grew up going to bagel shops that didn't have toasters. <laughs> right, because they because the they bagels didn't every them, day. Yeah. No. I think there's there is something to the 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 like the heritage of cooking styles that people are are unwilling to let go of. So frequently, the reason we do X or Y in the kitchen is not because it is the most efficient way or the mm -hmm. thing that leads to the best or most consistent response. It's because of some deep rooted adaptation. Mm -hmm. 
scarcity or war or mm-hmm. like we, you know, lived X miles from the creek or whatever it was right. that led to you deciding that, you know, you should only boil water for pasta a gallon and a half at a time. Right. Or, you know, I, I mean, or, or it's some or it's some um, it's it could also be that, you know, ingredients have changed over time or cooking equipment has changed over time. You know, the pasta thing, I think the main the reason why um, people talk about using a ton of water to cook pasta um I think it all, I think, and I can't prove this, but I think the reason why is, is because if you get like a really old fashioned, traditional, traditionally made pasta that, um, dried pasta or fresh pasta, um, but a dried pasta in particular that's extruded with, um, bronze dyes, um, very, you know, very sticky on the outside, um, dry it at a very low temperature. Um, the kind of pasta that's actually very difficult to find these days, because most pasta these days is extruded through Teflon dyes, uh, smooth on the outside and dried at high temperatures, which deactivates a lot of the, um, a lot of the starch in there. Um, so if you, if you're cooking a very old, old fashioned, old world style pasta, um, and you use only a little bit of water, it, it sticks, you know, it, you, it takes a lot more effort to make sure that it doesn't stick. Um, but we don't cook with that pasta anymore. You know, 99.9% of the people in the world don't, even in Italy, don't cook with that kind of pasta anymore. We cook with modern pasta, um, which doesn't require that huge amount of water. So I think, I mean, I think some of it might be things like that. Um, you know, other, other ones might be that they, um, you see people, you, chefs, you know, chefs work a certain way in restaurants and they're used to working with certain ingredients and certain types of equipment. And so they cook in a certain style, um, those styles don't always uh, translate well to home kitchens. So if you if you think about, um, for example, um, uh, steakhouse, right, where one chef has a, a cook has a grill and maybe they're st- cooking thirty to forty steaks at a time. Um, so they're filling up this grill. It's one person cooking all these steaks, and they really don't have time to do anything um, other than put the steaks on, flip them once halfway through. And it's, you know, it's easy to keep track of. It gets the steak done fast, blah, 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 it's, it, and you mess up less. Um, at home, on the other hand, you're probably only cooking maybe two or maybe four steaks at a time. Um, so you, so I think the, the idea that you should only flip your meat once, I think, comes from this restaurant. Like restaurant chefs are like, flip the meat once. That's the way we do it. That's the way the best steakhouses in the world should do it. So that's how you should do it at home. But you find out that if you actually flip your steak multiple times, like even as, as often as 15 or 30 seconds, um, it cooks more evenly. So you get less of a temperature gradient built up inside. It cooks more evenly, and it actually cooks about 30% faster too. Um, so it's, you know... In almost all ways, it's better to flip your steak multiple times, and yet many people are really adamant about not doing it. Um, and I think I think that's something that comes just because the educators in this case are working under a different set of parameters than the actual executors or the students. So what recipe did you get the most blowback from, like whether it's internet trolls or just, you know, recipe people or chefs? Mm, I mean, let's see. It's not—I don't really get blowback that often. Um, uh Hmm. There, I guess there was a time early on when um, I I wrote an article that was, you know, in retrospect, not researched well enough um, about deep frying turkey. And, you know, I, I deep fried a few turkeys using a few different methods and I found them to all be pretty universally bad. And so I was I wrote an article about how deep fried turkeys suck. And then all these people got really, really, really upset. Um and and um, and pointed out ways in way in, in which I might have been wrong in, in the way I tested it. And and it turns out they were right. You know, like I went back and retested a whole bunch of things and I had some really great deep fried turkey. So I wrote another article being like, sorry, deep fried turkey's good. Um, but that, you know, that that that's, was one of those situations where it was like, cool. whoops, like <laughs> but you, you faced it with humility and, and it was <laughs> it was fine. Has, has there been like 
one Kenji technique that you you think has been sort of your your greatest most unexpected discovery? Mm, greatest most unexpected discovery. I mean, I would say the one that gets used most frequently is the reverse sear, um, which is a technique I developed at Cooks Illustrated, um, two thousand seven, and so that that is the idea that. Um, and I think again, this is like one of those situations where they do it a certain way at a restaurant, and so that's just the way we did it at home. Um, but the idea is that so traditionally, when you cook a steak or a pork chop or whatever, you sear it at the beginning, then you put it into the oven to finish it. Um, and um, what I found was that if you reverse it and you start your meat in the oven and then you sear it at the end, um, you get a much better um, you get a much better end result. The the temperature gradient inside, so you get much more sort of medium rare meat, um, a better crust. Um, the the reason being that most of the reason is that um, when you put it in the oven, it dries out the surface of the steak, um, so you sear much more efficiently. Um, because you know when when you when you put a piece of steak in a pan, um, most of the energy that is stored in that pan goes towards uh, evaporating surface moisture from the meat. It takes um, like about 50 times more energy to raise the temperature of a gram of water by one degree, uh, to, to evaporate that gram of water uh, than it does to raise that temperature by one degree. So even if your steak starts out at zero degrees, like pretty much frozen, um, you put it in a pan, the time it takes to go from zero degree, the amount of energy it takes to bring that steak from zero degrees Celsius to 100 degrees Celsius, which is when the water starts evaporating, it still takes five times more than that to actually evaporate that water. So, that, you know, the starting temperature of the meat is almost irrelevant um, to how it's going to sear, but the starting dryness is very important. And that's what the reverse sear does. It sort of dries out the exterior so that you can sear very efficiently. And that and that's a technique I see. I mean, people use it all the time now. Um, which is pretty neat. I mean, let's go back to this idea of perfection, right? So how how do you, and that is my word. I mean, I don't want to put words in your mouth here, but <laughs> but I think there is this this notion in all of your dishes that it's, let's, I mean, it's prescriptive. You're saying if you do it this way, you will come out with the best possible result within the parameters of your testing, et cetera. Yeah. I mean, I, I try and qualify that. So, you know, when I, when I, when I say best possible results, it's always with sort of the the parenthetical for me, like, you know, it's like, I, I do try and explain what I, what I look for in X food. Um, and, and then I go about trying to get as close to that as possible. So, um, you know, so if you disagree with what my idea of a perfect chocolate chip cookie is, then if you follow my recipe, it's not going to be the perfect chocolate chip cookie for you. Um, um, but at the same time, I do try and offer as, you know, offer information so that you can adapt the recipe to make it the way you want. You know, I think about it a lot in the, in the way that I, um, I think a good restaurant reviewer writes a review. Um, you know, if, if you go like look on Yelp or a place where there are unprofessional reviews, it's mostly people giving their opinions, but you don't know anything about that person. So you don't know where, you know, what sort of frame frame of reference they have. Um, whereas a professional, like a good professional restaurant reviewer will, um, you, you'll have an idea of what they're looking for and why a restaurant did live up to or failed to live up those failed to live up to those expectations. Um, so I try, I try and do the same when I'm describing a recipe or writing the head note for a recipe um, is to you know explain what I'm looking for and how I got about um, and how I went about achieving that end result. Um, so so when I say perfect or ultimate or best or whatever, it's um, it really just means best for me. It also requires you to have superlative opinions about virtually every food that exists, <laughs> which feels like it might be kind of burdensome, right? Like, I feel like there are a handful of, of foods that I can have really, really strong opinions about mm -hmm. off the cuff. But if you, I mean, how, how many different, you have, how many recipes in this book? 800 well, or No, in the book, I think there's like 300. Which is still a gigantic number. I mean, like I. I but online there's, yeah, thousands. Thousands. Th you've, you've created thousands of recipes. Have you, 
discovered your own criteria for perfection in the course of examining these, or, or well, do you just sort you know, of walk around recipe, knowing? Not every recipe is called the best or X Y. Like I only use the term best or ultimate or whatever when it's when it is something that like you know, um, you know that I'm saying here's you know here's a recipe where. Um, our our goal is not efficiency. Our goal is not our only goal is to make it taste as good as possible. And here's what I think tastes as good as possible. Um, and I'll usually only do that for things that I actually have opinions about and strong opinions about. Um, I don't always have strong opinions about food. You know, like I just I just published a recipe for shakshuka this morning. The first time I ever had shakshuka was probably like I don't know five years ago. Um, no idea what it was before that. It's not like a dish I grew up with or I have very, very strong opinions about. Um, but you know, I've had it enough that I can say, and, and that I can say, this is what I like and this is what I don't like. Um, but when you're writing a recipe like that, you know, the first step in every recipe is always research. Um, and, um, not just research of what other recipes are out there, but also sort of cultural and historical research, because you really want to know what this, where this dish came from, what it means to people, um, and get a sense of, you know, what it's supposed to be before you go and, and try and make it, you know, your own way because because the last thing you want to do is say here's my recipe for shakshuka and then like have you know people in in north africa or in or in israel or wherever that you know places where shakshuka is very popular and where it came from um say no that's like what the fuck are you doing that's not shakshuka um or you know or or even even simpler it's like meatloaf right like i like i had meatloaf a couple times as a kid but it wasn't like a family it wasn't a family staple dish or anything um but it was for a lot of people so when i work on a meatloaf recipe the first thing i do is is find out what does meatloaf mean to people um because i don't want to write a meatloaf recipe where people then make it and think to themselves no this doesn't this doesn't hit the right notes, you know. Um, so that you know that that sort of cultural perspective, I think, is is the most important thing when you're starting recipe development. Speaking of of ownership, you you've been a really vocal advocate for people crediting recipes. Yeah, <laughs> which is really fun to watch on Twitter because you get like total guns blazing. It's fantastic. Angry Kenji is such fun, Kenji. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, I don't I don't envy you being in this position, man. Um, I mean, the recipe world is can be pretty slippery. It's it seems yeah. sometimes, and you know, I mean, my I, I want I want recipes shared, you know, and I and I and, and I don't I, like it's like if you want to take a recipe I wrote and feed it to your family and say it's your own, like I don't give a shit about that. Like, do you should do that, right? It's like you cooked it; it's yours. What what really sort of bugs me is when like a big company when they know that they're doing something unethical and they just won't admit it. And you know, and and this is, these are people who have told me like to my face over the phone. Editor, an editor told me, yes, like this recipe was stolen. I know it. Like I saw them do it, and I told them they shouldn't, and they did it. And it's like they know that that's what's going on, and yet they still refuse. To credit, and it's like, what, like, what harm comes from give, from giving people credit when they come up with an idea? Are you still, are you still in a in a fight with Tyler Florence, who stole, like, stole <laughs> your French fry recipe and ran it in his cookbook, ran it in his cookbook, as if yeah. it was his own brilliant technique? You know, I, so I, th I think most of the time, um, I don't, I like, I doubt Tyler Florence had anything to do with that. You know, I think that's, you know, he has his test kitchen, he has. Um, a team of people whose job it is to come up with recipes and test them. Um, I think probably somebody saw that recipe and brought it into the test kitchen to try it out. Um, and maybe that person was just like, you know, not didn't didn't grow up like as a journalist or whatever, did, you know, didn't have the right kind of um, the right kind of education to understand, like, these are the kinds of things you do have to credit. Um, and then it got passed up and and it just ended up getting looked over and put into the book. I think there's also some some credit for this 
phenomenon and credit sounds too positive. I think there is some blame for this phenomenon that we can give to the murky space that recipes and cooking and ideas of technique and dish creation mm -hmm. just sort of play in culture at large. Yeah. I mean, because recipes are things that are often just sort of organically passed on from, you know, parent to child or friend to friend or just sort of exist in yeah. ephemera within culture. Yeah. Maybe, and you know, anybody who's ever written a recipe or set or, or had a food blog has has had the moment where you learn this sort of like we can all, like all say it in a sing song voice like you can't copyright a recipe you can only copyright the language the words, that it's yeah. written in, and so it's it, it makes a certain sense to me that that we might just sort of think of techniques or methods as existing in the ether and being sort of by and large our right. cultural birthright. Right. And, the, and the question is, at, one po at what point does like a novel idea become sort of just general cultural knowledge? You know, at what point can you stop crediting people for whatever? You know, and, and, and that stuff comes up in my own work sometimes. You know, like the um, the, the meatloaf recipe in my book, um, um, you know, I developed it four or five, well, I guess, yeah, four years ago, something like that. Um, and then um, when the book came out, I had um, a former colleague at Cook's Illustrated who was like, hey, like, your meatloaf recipe uses like some of the techniques I did at Cook's Illustrated. And, it was like, um, and then I looked at it and it's like, oh, yeah, you know, like their meatloaf recipe has grated cheese. Mine has grated cheese. Um, we both add, add gelatin to our meatloaves. Um, and so and, and I, that was like, oh, shit, you know, I probably should have said something about that. And it, it just, you know, it didn't hit my it didn't occur to me while I was developing it. Um, so when we published the recipe online, I mentioned Cook's Illustrated. But in the book, it doesn't say that. So, you know, it's like. Yeah, who, who's to say what is malicious, what's not, and 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 you know when does something become just general knowledge, and when is it okay to credit, not credit? Um, it's it's a, it's yeah, it's hard to know where you draw that line. Um, um, you know, I I think generally, it's just do you know do the best you can. Yeah. <laughs> um, it does it doesn't hurt to to credit people. It only it only helps everyone. Um, I think especially because so. people are so interested in attaching stories to food now. Right. Mm -hmm. And you know even weeknight cooking. It, it's something that's sort of simple that you're throwing together, but you still want to, you know, at least for the sake of the Instagram caption, say like, where did this come from? Who did it? Right. Who I, you know, I, I made Christmas dinner for my family this past year, and I posted it to Instagram, and I had like, a, I had credits, like it was like photo credits. I, I made your standing roast of lamb. I made okay. like the Christmas ham. I mean, I was like, I. <laughs> you know, it's like the the fashion credits in a magazine. Like here are all the recipes that I made. It's just sort of how it flows. That's awesome. If only everyone would do that. It's like uh, <laughs> everyone should be more like me. I'm it's, perfect. <laughs> I have no. No, flaws. it's it's great. I mean, you know, it's like that. Uh, it's like that restaurant in San Francisco where all the dishes are from oh, other restaurants. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. right. Corey Lee's yeah. new restaurant. That's, I really want to go there. It's such a brilliant idea. I think this idea of a, of a restaurant that is a museum of other restaurants. Right. 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 Have you been? That's, I that's your neck I, you of the woods. I, I rarely go out these days. You know, like, because when I lived in New York, um, I and Serious Seats was still doing reviews, um, and I was writing a weekly review. I would, you know, go out to eat three or four times a week, um, always to new places, and I kind of got burned out on that. So what, since I moved to San Francisco, I we rarely, rarely go out anymore. Um, we mostly eat at home. A couple times a month, maybe we'll go out, but it's usually just to the same places that we like. So. So when you're doing a big uh, recipe or testing a recipe, how long does it take to clean up your kitchen? Uh, well, I clean as I go. You know, um, you're so perfect. Shut up. <laughs> Nobody actually does that. I worked in a restaurant. Like that's that's just how you do it. Um, uh, I, I clean as I go, so I it doesn't take long to clean up. Um, yeah, I, I, it's that's something that's kind of beaten into me, which it's, sometimes it's frustrating because it's like I, I do the same thing at dinner parties. Um, 
which means that I spend less time with guests or even when, even at dinner, like I can't sit down to the dinner table until I've, I've, until I've done all the dishes. Um, so, you know, it, it, (laughs) um, it's, it's a, it's a mixed blessing, but, uh, but it does mean that when I'm recipe testing, I don't really have that much cleanup to do at the end. That's like a disgustingly good answer. It's just, (laughs) have, have more flaws, be worse. (laughs) Kenji, we have come to the portion of the Eater Upsell that we like to call the lightning round. Okay. Um, And the way the lightning round works is we have a guest question asker who will ask you a couple of questions. Surprise guest? A surprise guest. Um... Well, I mean, not like someone's going to walk into the studio. Tyler Florence. um, (laughs) And you can just say whatever you want in response to them. Um... Your guest question asker is Neelai Patel, the editor-in-chief of The Verge, Eater's sister website. Awesome. Neelai, take it away. Hey, Kenji. It's Neelai Patel, editor-in-chief of The Verge. I have some lightning round questions for you. First, if you had to pick between colonizing Mars and making the hyperloop between L.A. and San Francisco real, what would you choose? Mars. Next question. Mars. (laughs) Who would pick the other one? Of course we colonize Mars. I don't know. What if you didn't get to go to Mars? Well, I'm assuming that, I mean, I don't think either one would be particularly useful for me as an individual, but I think one is way cooler than the other um, and also way more helpful in, in the long run than the other. We're, I mean, we're going we're I mean, to have to colonize like Mars It takes like an hour to point. get to L.A. from San Francisco. It's, yeah, you know, yeah. Not, not, it's not that big of a uh, gap to bridge. Would you go to Mars? I, I well maybe maybe I could retire to Mars. I don't know. There's enough stuff to see on Earth for now, but you know we're gonna have to colonize other planets if we don't want to completely implode. I mean, maybe, either either we're gonna destroy ourselves as a species or we're gonna colonize other planets. I, I, I'm I'm optimistic that it's gonna be the latter. Both of them make for really good action movies. Yeah, yeah. So or or we're all gonna um, upload our brains and lose bodies. Yeah, I'm really excited be to become too. a purely digital energy being. Mm-hmm. And, and we might already be. So. All right. Next question from Nilai. This is my favorite. What's your favorite cheap beer? Uh, PBR. It's such uh, a hipster. Such <laughs> a hipster from six years ago. It was um, no. Well, the reason is because um, it, it was like our shift drink at my first sort of real restaurant job when I was working at Number Nine Park in Boston. Um, this was let's see. I, I, I'm not allowed to say a date because it'll make me sound like even more of a hipster because I'm going to say I drank it before everyone else did. You drank um, it before it was cool. <laughs> um, but it was our shift drink. It was like a big five-gallon bucket full of ice and PBRs. And so I still think that there's like, yeah, nothing more refreshing than PBR out of an ice bucket uh, at the end of a long day. All right, next one. What's your guilty secret kitchen gadget? Guilty secret kitchen gadget. I don't have any guilt. I mean, I tend to I tend to write about everything I like, so it's, it's hard to, like, do, is there anything I hide in the kitchen? Um, I mean, one of my favorite gadgets is the mortar and pestle, but I, but that, that's nothing to be guilty about. Um, I use the microwave a lot, I guess. Um, I that's use a microwave a and, a, and a blowtorch a lot. A blowtorch, not, not so, so controversial, controversial, but a micro, microwave's get really bad But I use really it for stupid apps. things um, like, that I shouldn't use it for. Like what? Like breakfast toast? Uh, sometimes, yeah, or, or yeah, if like I, I want to get like a s- spot of browning on something, but like I don't, I, yeah, I don't know. What do I? What else do I use it for? It's like to melt the, melt the cheese on my grilled cheese when I'm too lazy to actually slow. Like, I tell people, <laughs> you know, cook your grilled cheese for ten minutes, slow and slow, and then sometimes I just make toast and microwave the cheese. All right, next question. Do you read the comments? Um, I, yeah, and I shouldn't, but I do, and they get me worked up sometimes. Do and, you and I shouldn't get worked up, but I do. 
What's that? Do you self-Google? Um, no. Uh, no. I, well, I have a Google alert set up for my book so that I'll know if, like, someone reviewed my book or something like that. Um, but I don't, I don't, I don't put my own, my own name in. I don't, maybe I do. Let me, let's see if it auto-completes. Everybody self-Googled. <laughs> I, 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 I definitely self-Googled. I'll Google the food lab, but I, I don't think I Google my name generally. I believe that I think everybody picks their nose, everybody self-Googles, and everybody tweets in the bathroom. It's oh, just, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. universal truth. Some, sometimes, sometimes, like... My name doesn't show up when I Google it. Some, sometimes I tweet from the bathroom when I'm when I'm at the office, and and then I realize, oh, everybody knows I'm tweeting in the bathroom right now. Oh, I admitted yesterday to tweeting in the bathroom on Twitter. Oh yeah, I was like, I, were, were you in the bathroom at the I time? I was. I was in the bathroom. Mm-hmm. I was it, like, this is. I'm sorry for sharing this with the world. Like double <laughs> being repulsive, but like I was talking to someone about something like very highbrow, mm-hmm. and I was just like, I'm literally like peeing while this is happening, and. I this try to. Is, I restrain myself from slacking from the bathroom because that, like, that's like even more obvious that. You're, that's too you're... professional. <laughs> um, some, but I have I have taken like phone interviews from the bath, and I usually don't tell them that. That's um, so saucy. <laughs> they they don't even hear the sound of the rubber ducky. I mean. <laughs> that feels so like old Hollywood starlet. You know, like you're in your bubble bath in your giant heart shaped bathtub, yeah. just like taking an interview. Well, sometimes, you know, because I live in California and so there's water restrictions. So I it, like a bath is like a rare because when I lived in New York, I took baths a lot. And growing up, like, we, you know, my mother's Japanese and I don't Japanese people love baths, I guess. But I grew up in the bath a lot. And when I lived in New York, I would say I spent like I would say a good 40 percent of Food Lab articles and the book was written like from the bath with my laptop on a little chair just outside the bath. Um, this is my favorite fact about you that I've ever learned. <laughs> I love it. But these days, a bath is a rare, like a really rare treat. So, so when I get in, like I stay for a long time and I'll work from it or whatever. And then if someone calls, I'm not going to get out just to take the call. So I like I shut off like we have a jacuzzi tub. So I shut off the jacuzzi and like try and sit as quietly as possible so I don't splash around. <laughs> I love it. I love it. And I hope, love it. hope that they don't hear like the reverb of the it's tile amazing. walls. This is great. <laughs> All right. Next question. This one's hard. If you could only eat one fast food burger for the rest of your life. What would it be? One fast food burger. Um, well, I mean, I so does Shake Shack count as fast food? I don't think so. I think Shake Shack's out. It doesn't count. I would. I would say. I mean, I would say of like the real sort of real classic fast foods, In and Out. All right. Easy. Pretty easy. That's that's a classic answer. Double double or what's uh, your I order? do so. I do a single um, animal style with chopped chilies, uh, whole and uh, whole grilled onion. Have Greg and I talked to you about our shared obsession with the secret way to make your Shake Shack burger way, way better that that reminded me of? Which is the secret way to make your Shake Shack burger? <laughs> it's, um, it's to add, what do they call them, Greg? The peppers. The cherry yeah, pepper cherry relish peppers. that comes on the... Uh, it's, so it's yeah, not... A, comes oh, on at the Shake Shack, smoke. you mean? Shake Shack. Oh, oh, okay. Yeah, at yeah, Shake yeah, Shack, yeah. they have these chopped chilies that they That's put right. on one particular yeah. type of burger, but you can ask on for them... On smoke stack or whatever. Yeah. Call it, yeah. And you can, ask for them, you can ask for them with anything. On the regular burger? Nice. And it is transformative. Nice. That reminds me, actually, most popular, most popular Serious Seats article of all time was um, a thing I wrote about the secret menu at um, In and Out, oh. which I think is now it's mainly popular still because it's like the only reference on the In and Out Wikipedia page. <laughs> um, so we get a lot of traffic from Wikipedia. Oh, wow, that's incredible. Uh, well, that's the seminal secret menu. That's the one that everyone wants to know. Yeah, I yeah, feel yeah. Like, you know, 
and it's the it's the chain that has the most robust secret menu program that it does. I know of. Yeah, it was it was a fun fun thing to write because I I went I was living in New York at the time, but I went and visited a friend in California, and we went to the In and Out in Sausalito. Um, and at first my plan was like, all right, we're going to try and make this inconspicuous and we'll go up, uh, and we'll only order like four things at a time and, and come back to our table and we'll make multiple rounds and send different people up each time. And by the third time I got up the, the cashier, his name is Thomas. He's like, are you guys just trying to get everything on the secret menu? And I was like, sheepishly like, yes. He's like, oh, this is so awesome here. I'll help you. And then like, he like basically told us everything on the menu and he's like, oh, and you have to try this and you have to try this and you have to try that. Um, and he just became like our little tour guide for, um, in and out secret menu is great. That's so cool. And he said it was his funnest, funnest day at work ever. Oh, good. You made his day. <laughs> That's terrific. All right. On to our next one. What song do you most often imagine yourself performing? What song do I most often imagine myself performing? I mean, uh, I, I go to karaoke sometimes four times a week. Um, so I, I rarely imagine, like I, yeah, I, I go and sing songs at karaoke. Um, so you don't have to imagine it. I don't even have to imagine it. What are your karaoke um, jams? I, I try to I try to mix it up a lot. Um, recently, it's been a lot of Paul Simon um, and Elton John. Love that. Um, you can call me Al is a great karaoke song. I think. Yeah. Because um, yeah, it has it like is. a nice recognizable chorus, but like the words are fun, and it's sort of fast paced and not stupid. Um, yeah, I try to mix it up a bit. But are but, you a private room karaoke person or a like? Public group. Karaoke. I prefer bar, I prefer like dive bar karaoke, which is what when we so when we moved to San Mateo a year ago, discovered there's like an English pub, uh, block and a half away from my house that does karaoke multiple times a week. Um, so yeah, dive bar karaoke is is my thing. It's like more of a performance and less of an like singing along in the car kind of thing. Well, it's also a lot more downtime. Like you can go and hang out with friends and drink beer. Like when you do it in a room. Y- everyone's all you're, you're always on and it's all just about the singing um whereas this it's like sort of a diversion that you know every time the conversation gets awkward someone goes up and sings goes up and sings so it gives you something to talk about and something to do other than just you know that's a very good point you should write a recipe for karaoke the perfect karaoke <laughs> night i love it that's beautiful you should write recipes for everything yeah. <laughs> all, right. all right one more question and then it's all over okay thank god and I think this is the most revealing of all. It tells the deep inner truth of your heart. Do you have your phone in a case or do you roll naked? In case. Uh, my, my iPhone is in a wallet case, actually. So I keep like four credit cards and my phone all so in the same thing. you can lose everything all at once. So I can lose everything all at once. Yeah. Well, I, it, you know, I have that. And then I also I've been trying to come up with pocket solutions my so i have in one pocket my iphone with like three credit cards and those are the ones i use most but then i also have this little the company is radix one radix one it's like it's one of these little like clippy um wallety things that has like a thick rubber band that goes around it and two plastic things that holds the rest of your cards um and it would be nice if i only if i had one one thing that held all these together but then it gets nice and then it gets too fat Um, but I, i used to carry a phone and a wallet and that was too much i mean i'm a woman and I carry a giant bag. So yeah, yeah. I, I wish I could carry a giant bag. You can, you can, I can. You can do absolutely anything you want to do. <laughs> but that was cool. We <laughs> saved the most boring question for last. Yeah. Sick burn well, on Neelai. On that note, Kenji, we wanted to thank you so much for uh, coming and chatting with us today. <laughs> yeah, in the thanks Eater for having studio. me. Yeah. Our listeners can find you. Your Twitter handle is at the Food Lab. Is my, that yeah, my Twitter handle is at the Food Lab. My Instagram handle is uh, Kenji Lopez Alt. Um, and my face bat, Facebook is, I think, the Food Lab Recipes because someone else took the Food Lab and doesn't use it for anything. Bastard. But, ah, yeah. bastard. <laughs> cool. Well, Kenji, it has been a real pleasure. 
Thanks for being here with us. Thanks. Gosh, Kenji's great. This episode of The Eater Upsell was presented by MailChimp, which sends more than a billion emails a day from all sorts of folks who want to reach customers, clients, and their friends and loved ones. MailChimp, send better email, sell more stuff. The Eater Upsell is recorded in the Vox Media Studios in New York and Los Angeles. Your hosts are me, Helen Rosner, and that other guy over there, Craig Morbido. Our producers are Maureen Giannone and Patrick Balder. Our editor and associate producer is Daniel Janine. Our associate editorial producer is Kendra Vaculin. Our studio ops team is Alex Ulreich and Miles Yule. Our editor-in-chief and fearless leader is Amanda Clute. And the most important person involved in the creation of this entire crazy rodeo is you, dear listener. You. Thank you for being exactly who you are. <laughs>